Across the street from the Texas State Capitol in Austin, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with today's guest, Lord Michael Ashcroft. And here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. It is a beautiful, sunny day in Austin, Texas, on Sunday, April 23rd, 2017. And we are indeed honored to have Lord Michael Ashcroft in our studio today. Welcome, sir. Thanks, Trey. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. To give our audience a little bit of background on you, sir, uh, you are a successful businessman, a politician, and a philanthropist. You were former deputy chairman of the Conservative Party of the UK, ennobled as a life peer in 2000, sworn in as a member of the Privy Council of the United Kingdom in 2012. Uh, Lord Ashcroft also sat on the conservative benches of the House of Lords until 2015 and holds dual British and Belizean, did I say that correctly? You did indeed, All right. right. Dual British and Belizean nationality, and he, he is a belonger of the Turks and Caicos Islands. Uh, and interestingly, after you graduated from college, you hitchhiked around Europe and managed a rock band. Is that fake news or is that real? No, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. In my early days, I was also on Social Security, worked as a swimming pool attendant, a barman, a postal worker, a cab driver, uh, in order to make a, a little bit of money. Social Security? Yes, I was unemployed. Oh, wow. And was that, was hitchhiking across Europe and managing a rock band, did your insight into social security or being on the dole, as it might be said, did that shape your future? I think uh, the beginnings of your life, it's just like if you're a kid and you watched a particular football team with your uncle or your dad for the rest of your life, you tend to follow the results of that. So whatever your life experiences are when you're much younger, you take them into adulthood, whether you're conscious of it um, or not. And I would like to think that those early beginnings when I was uh, struggling and uh, trying to find my way in life, and I was uh, what you guys call an ADD uh, (laughs) character, Uh, but in those days it wasn't particularly diagnosed, and uh, I was never particularly good at uh, examinations, but I knew uh, that I wasn't uh, stupid. Uh, but uh, uh, you learn more about uh, those that are afflicted with uh, attention deficit uh, disorder. But I would hope those early days at least kept my head out of the clouds, my feet on the ground as I got through uh, uh, through life and uh, and took that with me. I Your would thumb s- in the air. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, I assume that's how you hitchhike oh, in yes. the UK as Works well, right? Works the same right? way. Standard yeah, thumb in the air. Some, some in the air all the way from the United Kingdom. I went through Europe, landed up in Greece. I left the United Kingdom with uh, something like 50 pounds in those days, and I got back eight weeks later with 30 pounds. So it was wow. a successful trip. That's not too bad at all. You know, going back to the ADD or ADHD, whatever in whatever you might have, I suspect that most of our highly successful people across the world over time had ADD. I think it's a motivating factor, is it not? I think they've tried, they've worked out that uh, through history that the people that uh, had ADD were often many of the explorers of the world. They were the ones that were itchy to press frontiers, press boundaries, um, also very good salesmen. Um, I found in one of my businesses that employing ADD people, as long as you uh, didn't expect their admin as a consequence to be good, the oral persuasiveness, and they tended to be the ones that had a humor 
because humor was one way of overcoming some of the deficiencies of ADD. And um, so as a salesman, wow. uh, they, worked, uh, they worked very well. Which was a successful tactic. I mean, that seems like an edge. You figure out that people that may be scoffed at by some are really valuable employees. Oh, yeah. Everyone has uh, particular attributes, a matter of finding it. So, what? Lord Ashcroft, just uh, in the background that I read, there's a lot there to be unpacked for our audience who may not be familiar with you or your work. And one of the things I mentioned is that you were ennobled as a life peer in 2001. Would you mind explaining to our audience what that means exactly? Well, as you have the Senate and the House of Representatives, we have the House of Commons and the House of Lords, except that the House of Lords is an appointed chamber. It's not an elected chamber. Uh, and it's a revising chamber of the House of Commons. It never stands in the way of the Commons. So unlike your, your own system in which if your House of Representatives votes for something, the Senate can overrule it, uh, we in the Lords uh, will revise the law. We may disagree with the House of Commons. We send it back. They would have a look at it. Uh, they may then accept our amendments, uh, or if they don't, they send it back. Uh, and at that point, we tend to, to give way to the uh, democratic elected uh, lower chamber. But once you are um, appointed, <clears throat> you are in fact appointed for life. And there are very few exceptions that you can be dismissed from the House of Lords, including a criminal conviction and one or two other things. But apart from that, uh, you have it for life. And like uh, your own system of, of president and ambassadors, even when they finish office, they keep the title president or ambassador. Right. And so even though I resigned uh, from the House of Lords a couple of years ago, I still keep the title of, uh, of Lord. That's cool. Oh, Super tell me about I'd rather have it than not have it, right? <laughs> I tell you what, Trey, getting restaurant reservations, it helps. <laughs> uh, so, so that begs the question then, because I like to eat, how does one become a Lord these days? Well, the, normally that you are uh, recommended by a leader of the, uh, of the two major political parties. Uh, the prime minister signs off on it. Uh, there is a process of due diligence, uh, and that then goes to the queen, and it's finally the queen's signature, and then you join the, uh, the House of Lords. And you can either join as a member of that political party that recommended you, or you can sit as what we call a crossbencher, or you'd call an independent. And uh, probably around 20%, I could be a few percent out, in the House of Lords are in fact independent. Well, I don't think I qualify, so I'm going to have to keep using OpenTable or some other app for my restaurant <laughs> reservations. Uh, I also noted that you were sworn in as a member of the Privy Council of the UK in 2012. Would you mind explaining what that is? Well, the Privy Council is one of the antiquated things of uh, British monarchy. Uh, they are officially the advisors to the Queen, um, except in the, in the early days, uh, many privy councillors were called in to brief the King or Queen of the, the day. Uh, today, in fact, though the legislation is there, everyone who joins the Cabinet has to be a privy councillor. And many of our law lords and uh, uh, other people in government become a privy councillor. But technically now, uh, and every bill or act of parliament uh, goes to the Queen through the Privy Council. And the only time that it uh, really meets is on the death of, of a monarch. 
to actually approve that the line of succession is correct. Because going back in history, there was often doubts mm. on the legiti legitimacy of the heir. Uh, so that yeah. is, in fact, the, the tradition. But it's one of those nice baubles to have. It impresses my mother. <laughs> it allows you to put a couple extra letters after your name, oh, tell, right? Tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> Which I did have to look up all of those letters. Uh, thank God for Wikipedia. I don't know what I'd do without it. Um, so I do have to ask, you hold a dual British citizenship, and then you are also a citizen of Belize. And did you grow up there as well? My father was... Um, was an old colonial officer. Those were men from Britain that went out to, to run the colonies that we had at the time just after World War II. Uh, my father was an enlisted infantryman in World War II. He came out a junior officer, and his first colonial posting uh, was to what is now Malawi, uh, Nyasland, and that was where I first went to school. And his second posting was to the British colony of British Honduras, which is now Belize in right. Central America. Direct flights from Dallas, folks. Very nice keys. <laughs> few nice right. hotels run by my son. How's, um, how's the surfing? <laughs> is the surfing any good? No, I'm s no sadly, sadly not. But the uh, the local beer is uh, is pretty good. Bellican. Bellican, you have it. All right. You, you have ding, it. Ding ding ding. You win. I took a trip there years <laughs> ago, and um, I, uh, the Bellican beer made a made a huge impact. We stayed at the Victoria House. Yes, I'm saving up for that one, but I'm glad you're able to uh, <laughs> to make it. <coughs> And uh, so I was there um, uh, at school there, and I met many friends, and I kept in touch, and uh, uh, eventually uh, had a home there, which I still do to, uh, to this day. My father was a great traveler. When we left uh, British Honduras in 1956, uh, we flew to Guatemala City, spent a few days up to Mexico City. Then we went by train from Mexico City to New York. But a branch of my family... Uh, had left just after World War II to Arlington in Texas here. Oh, really? So we spent a week in in Dallas, Arlington, the Fort Worth uh, area. And my father was had been used to rationing in Britain the hardships after World War II, and he was very close to abandoning the colonial service and staying in Dallas <laughs> um, with the other, si big. other side of, the fa of uh, that distant family. So, of course, uh, history for me may well have turned out very uh, differently. And perhaps by now I might have been the governor of Texas. Who knows? And, and your accent would be quite a bit different. Well, that's, the, that's the one grateful <laughs> thing that uh, I'm happy he didn't stay, of uh, course. Sure, sure. It sounds uh, like your dad may have had a touch of the ADD, too. He liked to travel and explore. And it just it blows my mind hearing it that you come from a beginning like that and one day you're advising the queen. I mean, was that surreal? To think you, you're, you know. You well, well, it, well, it is, but uh, uh, don't over, don't over egg the advising of the, uh, of the of the queen, as I've explained. You know, we sit there, and uh, it's more a bauble than anything else. But it's a nice thing. It ranks in the in the pecking order higher than a lord, so that once you, you know, a knight. Uh, I am also a knight, so I'm Sir Michael. With the sword. As well. Like oh, she the, did the sword you have, routine you, and everything. You, you have the whole the whole thing. Tap you, tap you on the shoulder. Hope you're not beheaded at that particular <laughs> uh, at that particular point. Uh, and then it comes in in ranking to the lord. Uh, but the privy councillor, um, you go one stage further, and you get that wonderful title in front of you, the right honourable. Mm. So the full name. Just wait for it, Trey. 
<laughs> the Right Honorable Lord Ashcroft. Oh, hey, I love God. it. I love it. That does. That rolls off. Yes, rolls right off the tongue. Wow. You, you, you mentioned a second ago saving up to stay somewhere. I did notice uh, when I was researching you that you have signed what is called the Giving Pledge, which is a commitment by the world's wealthiest individuals and families to get, dedicate the majority of their wealth wealth to philanthropy at some point. Why do you feel that is the right thing to do? I've just got something about inherited wealth. Uh, that, uh, And I had uh, years ago, uh, when I wrote the book, uh, Dirty Politics, Dirty Times, I actually said in there that uh, I'd made arrangements that 80% of my wealth uh, would either be given away in my lifetime or on my death. And then I saw that the Giving Pledge, a wonderful organization headed up by Warren Buffet and Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerman, Michael Bloomberg, uh, many of your entrepreneurs, Elon Musk, all the rest of it, um, had this organization of philanthropy to which you had to pledge 50%. Mm-hmm. of your wealth to charity. So I thought, I've already paid the ticket here. <laughs> I might as well might mi- get some credit. I, I might as well mix with the boys. All right. And so at that point, um, I, I joined the uh, Giving Pledge. And they are a superb group of self-made, uh, self-made men who, who want to help either the next generation. You know, you have people like Warren Buffet. He's literally given away all his wealth. Right. Uh, to and, and ironically, under the control of Bill Gates, through <laughs> that his is family. strange, <laughs> unfortunate in my opinion, but whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, you mustn't let your political skirt show too often. <laughs> now, what? conservative though, I was going to ask, um, um, as a leader of the conservative party in the UK, when when you come to the US or you start comparing the politics, does it mean the same thing? Uh, no, there are certain. Um, similarities in any democratic process. But the fundamental difference here is you have 50 states with their own lawmaking capabilities guarding that right very carefully. So you have far more elections over here. And when it comes to your national politics, we have to appoint our cabinet from our elected members of parliament or a few from the House of Lords. And so we don't have the best talent of the nation that lands up in our cabinet. Hmm. Now, you're able to form a cabinet of who you regard as the best in the country. You can argue about some of the choices and say, I wouldn't have picked A, I wouldn't have picked B. Uh, But you can get the best of your nation in the cabinet. And equally, in in the Senate and the House of Representatives, your your. Republic, for example, your Republican uh, Senate leader or, or House of Representatives are appointed by those, uh, those people within those two houses. They are not appointed by the president in that position. So the checks and balances that you have with your, your president are far greater. And so the power of a prime minister in Britain is arguably far greater uh, than you have with less checks and balances because patronage in the UK is very high. The Prime Minister appoints and removes people, uh, and, um, and the people that are voting are within her party, within her domain, um, and if you don't vote the way that uh, uh, the Cabinet makes policy, you could have your career ruined and so on and so forth. So there's a bit of sycophants hmm. start <laughs> at that stage. So I think you've got us... The, the, 
Uh, I mean, there are some parts of it that uh, the Brits find confusing are things like the popular vote for president in your electoral college and uh, whether that is consistent or incon uh, inconsistent. Uh, but in the main, um, I think you've, you've built up a good system. Well, Thank everybody you. should rest assured in Britain that we don't understand it either here. <laughs> so, uh, Lord Ashcroft, in September last year, you decided to bring your polling and research firm to the U.S., and start Ashcroft in America and focus on the uh, the presidential election. What motivated you to do this, and, and what did you find out? What did you discover? I think it's uh, uh, curiosity. <clears throat> uh, curiosity. It's the second time that the United States, for me, has driven a curiosity. The first time was in business, where I had built up some businesses in the U.K., but really wanted to expand that into the United States. And I made a very conscious decision that I wanted a stage of my business career in the United States. And I came over here. So you could see that? I mean, you saw that clearly, like what you wanted? I, I saw exactly uh, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to wow. do. And what I did with, uh, with my colleagues is I drew up a list of what we regarded as the ideal profile of a business we wanted to invest in without knowing exactly the type of business that would be, but it had to have certain parameters. So we came over here, we went through every NASDAQ company, every company on the pink sheets, research, until eventually uh, the a company came forward that fitted most of the criteria that we had set down, and that was electronic security. From finding that business, um, I eventually became chairman and CEO and built up ADT, uh, which is a wow. well-known brand in this in the in the uh, uh, in this country. It's the only uh, one. And then, <laughs> I mean, I honestly can't think of another service that does that. Thanks to Lord Ashcroft. Yeah. <laughs> and if anybody out there has had an ADT system for one time, I'd like to really thank you for your contribution to my standard of uh, living over the uh, over the years. You're welcome. <laughs> and so that was the first time that uh, the United States drew me. And the second time was coming over here to understand what drove people in the States to vote the way they did. It was highlighted by the fact that it was Trump versus Clinton, because uh, there has never been so much interest in the United Kingdom by your political process. I jokingly say to people that uh, my admiration of the U.S. political system is that they are able, by a process of elimination over three to four years, to be able to present to the great American voter the two most competent, capable people that the nation has for them to make the final <laughs> determination. <laughs> and uh. so, so it was that curiosity, and plus the fact that I'd had a good look at Brexit, and what motivated people and why people voted Brexit. And I was curious as to whether some of that phenomena uh, was there in the Trump voter, uh, because the Brexit voter was often shy. And when we found we came over and started our focus groups over here, uh, then we found that there were many uh, voters who were going to vote for Trump, but hadn't even told their family or their friends or their colleagues at work because they were getting a little hassle if they did. Right. Hmm. Uh, so we couldn't quantify that, but I wrote an article for Time magazine before the general election uh, saying that uh, it ain't done until the votes are counted uh, and that I was very skeptical uh, of, uh, of, of the uh, liberal elite and the media elite uh, not being able to understand why a reasonable person would vote for Trump.
and they still to this day cannot understand that phenomena. That's right. And the issue for them is until they can understand that, every further assumption they make is on sand, not concrete. No doubt about it. <clears throat> and they got very far down the road on those assumptions so far, yeah, that they couldn't see the sand foundation anymore, and it just it grew out of control. That puts you on a pretty short list of people that, that were able to you know, see through that fog and maybe not say he's going to win, but I wouldn't exactly count him out. So what do you think of Trump so far? Well, before I answer that, yeah, Trey, I know you're looking I at the cup of coffee. I must tell you that your choice of coffee for your guests it's, here does need an element of it's improvement. It's not Starbucks. Uh, you know, okay. Keurig cure gets you through the day, but it's not uh, certainly not uh, up up to par for a gentleman like yourself. And is, I apologize. Is there a hair in it? That was a look like there's something floating uh, in this coffee. Uh, yes, yes, it's not impressive, Trey. No, I apologize. <laughs> well, uh, so I, I'll invite you back a second time, and I assure you the second time around I will have better coffee. How does that sound? That sounds good. Awesome. So, President Trump, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's not for me to describe, you know, what I think about things like him as a man and all the rest of it. The American public have voted for Donald Trump. He now does hold the office of the President of the United States. And so, uh, and those people that voted for him knew what they were voting for. It is very important to realize that nobody who voted, the people who voted for Trump, were not hoodwinked. They knew their man. They knew their characteristics. Um, they had to make, life is not about the best of choices. Life is about least worst alternatives. That's and right. once you go down that path, there's always a problem. As, a, as I say to people on a difficult decision making, uh, to every solution you'll find a problem. And as a consequence, nothing happens. But here they had that fundamental choice. Did they want more of the same? Or did they want to take a risk of not knowing what was going to happen as a consequence. And on balance, they said it was time to take this risk. Right. But they also knew, unlike Brexit, Brexit was a lifetime decision. Trump was a four-year decision. That's a good point. And, and within your American system, which you take for granted, you don't see those checks and balances that hold, that hold your nation together. So if Donald Trump says uh, to uh, Mad Dog Mattis, you know, prepare, I see, he said, I have a gut feeling we should invade Lebanon next weekend. I'm sure Mad Dog Mattis would not say yes, sir. Correct. At that point. Let's hope. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't happen. Or Rex Tillerson, um, uh, who is a strong individual character. You, all these choices that you've got as your cabinet, that you can put up some negatives for it. But basically, they are well-experienced people that are not going to be pushed around. And so why not take that four-year uh, four risk uh, on balance? And that's, in fact, what happened. And it also happened on Brexit. Right. I wrote an article before Brexit saying that uh, Britain was not faced here uh, with ideal choices. But we did know where the European Union had started from. And we knew the journey that they wanted to go with greater and greater political integration. And Britain didn't want that. Right. Didn't want to go on this journey of losing more and more 
I mean, can you imagine um, Donald Trump saying, we've got a great idea here. In our legal system, it'll no longer be the Supreme Court. It's going to be a mixture of Mexican, Canadian, and U.S. judges that's going to rule our life. I don't think it's uh, I mean, sure, uh, you know, a I mean, good way to put I, it. I think I would confidently say, without doing any polling or any focus groups, what the answer may be uh, and where those voters would stuff that up on my parts. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're... Okay, let me, let me gather my thoughts there. Turn uh, into a gate of its own. <laughs> your current Prime Minister, Theresa May, before she was Prime Minister, she was instrumental in getting a terrorist deported from from England. His name was Abu Qatada. And what was interesting about that and reading that is when she initially recommended his deportation, the EU overruled that decision. And that brings up a, a very serious question of sovereignty. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, th- that whole decision and, uh, and how long it took to be able to do that is part of the reasons that people voted for Brexit, is that we couldn't, the British public can't get to grips with the fact that we can't just kick somebody out uh, and just use our UK legal system, that we've got to go to uh, higher authorities. And uh, many of the judges that uh, that form part of uh, the European Court of Justice have qualifications that perhaps wouldn't get them far up the ladder in either the U.S. or the U.K. in terms of uh, the positions they held. And so uh, all these factors uh, came to light. We must control our borders and we must have the ability uh, to deport people without having to go through a six to eight year legal process uh, to be able to do it. So I, it's I think we're having like, the same problems here yeah. in the United States, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, it, the Brexit can, could be compared to how... Uh, George Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney, and his name's still on it, but he has no control. He has no control, but his name is still front and center. It must, he must feel that way, where he feels like he, he is stuck in an EU. So, Lord Ashcroft, uh, Charlie Hodge, who is sitting to your right and across the table from me, is always very profound in his commentary, especially when it comes to movies and Star Wars and things of that sort. And, and it'll take a while for that to sink in, but tonight, probably over dinner, dinner did, you'll did say you, to yourself... Did you say profound? I, I, it, I did, it, out it of It certainly respect. trade so far hasn't really come <laughs> shone through. Maybe this is just a, a different show. Like I said, at dinner, at dinner it will sink in and it, it will come to you. And it, After that, two glasses of wine? Or maybe five. Okay, maybe five. I got you. Uh, back to Brexit, uh, this is a topic that fascinates me, and I think most Americans don't grasp the magnitude of it, as you said. But last year, the Brits voted to leave the EU. Uh, Theresa May is now charged with uh, implementing that strategy and that exit between now and 2019. How is she doing so far? Well, we're, we're early days. Uh, the, the, the problem that, uh, that, sh- that she had, first of all, is there was a legal challenge that, uh, that she unilaterally couldn't trigger the exit from the EU, that it had to go to Parliament. So that, that went to law, and our Supreme Court said she didn't have the power. It had to go to Parliament. So she had to go through the whole parliamentary process for permission to do that. And fortunately, she called the bluff of the Labour Party, and all the Remainers, and she won that vote by over 500 uh, majority. 
Now, the second stage of that eventually is she's got to come back to the House uh, for what's called the Great Repeal Bill at some point. And she then found, before she called this election, that she had a number of her own party who just wanted what, what is euphemistically called a hard Brexit. Let's, let's, we're going to exit. Let's just exit. Right. Let's not even negotiate a trade agreement. Hmm. Uh, and there's quite some uh, strong feelings. We had the Labour Party who said they would vote against it unless these six conditions were met. And some of those conditions, the EU had already said, were non-negotiable. And she also had uh, the House of Lords uh, that uh, because the Conservative Party does not have a majority in the House of Lords, uh, threatening to delay or really, uh, I think, equivalent of a filibuster type mm. of thing of just making it very difficult, that the path be was looking as if it could be really tough going, whilst at the same time she was trying to negotiate a deal with the EU. So she wow. has called an election and she'll put it straight on the line um, I don't want my hands tied. I'm not going to settle for conditions. And hopefully to get enough of a majority that she can deal with all resistance in the deal that she finally negotiates. And I suspect that she will get that majority. Is this the upcoming SNAP election? Yeah, this is the beginning of June um, election. And would you explain to our audience and people around Texas and the U.S. what a SNAP election is? Well, a snap election, uh, we have uh, a fixed-term parliament of five years, but that can be broken if two-thirds of the House of Commons vote for an election. And that was designed for the fact that a ruling party hardly ever had two-thirds, mm -hmm. and it meant that you had to have some opposition people. So what she did is said, I'm calling an election for the beginning of June. It's going to the House of Parliament tomorrow morning, uh, two-thirds majority, um, put up or shut up. And, of course, that put the Labour Party in quite a dilemma because here they've been talking about Theresa May was unelected because she followed David Cameron, so she didn't actually win the prime ministership through a general election but because mm. Cameron resigned. Right. So you've got to be, it's like the rest of things in life, be careful what you wish for. So they were talking about her being unelected and they were going to really give her a hard time and this, that and the other. So she called it. So the Labour Party had no real choice but to support the resolution for an early election. Interesting. Uh, so she's now got her early election. Now, once that election is held at the beginning of June, our fixed term parliament comes in again. And it's then absence a snap election and approval of the House of Commons. It will run for five years. Okay. Is that a risky strategy on her part? I, I think most things in politics, when you go down a path, have a bit of a risk. Sure. But I think in this particular one, it would have been extraordinarily difficult for an opposition who's been calling, uh, you know, they're ready for an election, they're going to give it a fight. And all of a sudden she says, okay, honey bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Let's have a fight. This is what you want. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, good on her. Well, it seems like everything she's working on um, it depends on what the future holds with France, the Frexit. I mean, if they, everything she's working on could, could just disappear and she'd have to start over if, if the climate changes with the vote in France. No, I think the, the vote in France is a fascinating one. I mean, if, um, if Le Pen were to become president, I mean, we could see the total uh, dissolution of the European Union. Uh, but... 
she is she has a very very strong core base but most people think it would be difficult for her to improve on that so while she's running very close uh, at the moment the elections are today uh, the f- top four contenders in in the polls were at 23%, 21%, 19%, and 18%. Mm. And so two of those, nobody's going to get the 50% required in, in this first round. So it'll depend on who those two are. The favourite is Macron uh, to uh, to take it on the second ballot, but nobody can be totally sure who's going to get through uh, to the final two. All those shy people... The, the shy Brexit voter, the shy well, th- Trump voter. That, that is, uh, that's, that's all part of the equation. It might get Le Pen into the final two, uh, but you'd need a lot of shyness uh, mm. to then get to 50% on the second one. But as we have seen in politics um, around the world, uh, the rise of uh, those that are disappointed in the political process are on the rise. Without a doubt. And Marine Le Pen is uh, is part of the National Front Party, which historically has been viewed as a relatively uh, extreme right-wing party. How has she uh, brought that back to the center, and how has she become so popular? Well, sh- she's not as extreme as her father, and so she has moderated uh, the positioning. And between her and her daughter, who is an elected official in the south of France already— uh, they have got it to the uh, to the point where they where it's become very populist and nationalistic. Um, but whether that hits a majority, who knows? Well, that was the question here, fall of last year, correct? Uh, yes, but 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 again, um, the whole strat when Trump started, you could get odds at the bookmakers in the UK of two hundred to one of Trump making the president. Right. So if you really thought at the time he put his name forward when there were, what, 16 or whatever it was, Republican candidates, um, for every dollar you could have made 200 at that stage. But in every stage of the process, the political and media elite underestimated the power of the populist message. Bear in mind, Trump was full of policy. There was no meat on the bone. Full of policy, sure. whether it was uh, repeal Obamacare, build a wall, NAFTA, the Chinese are doing this, immigration is this. Uh, it was full of populist policy. You could parody the Clinton side. It was, do you know what he said to Miss Universe? <laughs> right. So, so uh, and people underestimated the power of that or the need or the or the want for change whatever the risk so the the media i'll I'll risk it all to have some change and i don't even know if the change is good my god charlie you got a husky voice (laughs) (laughs) and now you know why he's in radio it was that or some other uh, yeah it was that or game show host or yeah that wasn't what was crossing my mind but uh, (laughs) The, the the point you just made, I think, is important. Is is the media elite underestimated Trump? The media elite, at least in America, told us Brexit wouldn't happen. It was going to be a crisis if if the Brits voted to leave the EU. So it just wasn't going to happen. They were wrong on both of those accounts, which also makes me wonder if they're wrong about Marine Le Pen. It's a it's a genuine thing to wonder. 
but of all those, uh, Brexit and Trump and all the rest of it, I think it's a harder path for Le Pen uh, to actually get there. But as we said early in the conversation, nothing these days is impossible. But I think we've just got to wait and see. We'll get a good indication uh, when we know the result of the first one and who the two are that are going to, uh, to face off. But as far as the money is concerned that has been wrong for both Brexit and Trump, the money is on Macron. Okay. And I thought I read, correct me if he's wrong, that he has also said he will hold an election or a referendum on the exit of France from the EU. Is that correct? Okay. Well, let's just... I mean, I don't want to disagree with Trey. I mean, it's a well-known radio <laughs> broadcast, and we're a guest here. I, you know, you know. Well, let me let me rephrase the question then. <laughs> let me rephrase the question. What, you're you're an odds maker. You're a pollster. Um, what are the chances that France holds a referendum to exit the EU? Whew. At this stage, I would bet against it. Okay. You know, you heard it here first. <laughs> He's probably said that 20 times today already. It's only 9.30. But, um, immigration is a big issue, not only here, but it's been a big issue in Europe. The refugee crisis in Europe over the past two years has, has seen millions of immigrants flood into Europe. Um, there, there was a, an incredible, almost unbelievable story that came out of Germany New Year's Eve of 2015, about mass rapes that occurred across the country. Uh, perpetrators were mainly these so-called refugees. Uh, France has been attacked. Paris has been attacked by Islamic terrorists. Is this driving the populism in Europe? Of course. Um, it's, it's, it's part, <clears throat> well, I mean, not entirely, but you see, within the United Kingdom, what the, uh, again, the elite never particularly saw was the changing face of our, of our towns, where uh, too many kids uh, going to the schools, not being able to cope, multi-languages, many of these immigrants not being able to speak uh, English, burden on the health service. We, we, of course, have a free national health service. Yeah, and so immediately an immigrant comes in, they're entitled to uh, health services, the extra demands there. Um, the, the changing shape of the retail shops where they see Polish shops and this Romanian, sh you know, the, the whole thing, uh, where immigrants get priority over the housing lists. Mm. Uh, and so if you're a local and you're watching this changing face, it's not difficult whether your conclusion is morally right or not to come to a conclusion that you don't like what you're seeing. And so there were many of these, so that all those factors contributed um, towards uh, uh, people wanting Brexit, their jobs being taken, uh, so on and so forth. And so I'm not against immigration, I, I, but I am for controlled uh, immigration. I don't think you can just open your nation's borders and assimilate. Um, or expect know, assimilation. Or expect it overnight. Right. Um, and um, so this is the playoff between uh, uh, those compassionate people who feel that we should bring in refugees from around the world and however much it may hurt us, we should open our hearts and, uh, and so on and so forth, to the practical implications um, of that. And the British people have said, uh, hold on a second, uh, for example, Ar Angela Merkel has allowed over a million 
refugees from the Syria uh, type of area. Right. But the Brits are well aware within the European Union is those people have only got to stay in Germany for about four years before they have a German passport and they have a right to come to Britain. Right. So the, all these little drivers uh, were there to be able to say, hold on. And of course, all these attacks is not helping the headset uh, of the British voters of saying, uh, well, just, well, look, come, come on, let's just stand on our own here. Uh, but it is, it, it is a polarizing issue in Britain. And there are some very passionate people who believe that we should remain in the European Union, irrespective of all of this. And one of those is our ex-Prime Minister, Tony Blair, mm. who is, as an ex-Labour Prime Minister, is now telling people that in this election, vote for whoever in your constituency wants to remain in the EU, irrespective of their party. We've never had this type of phenomena happening. It's almost a not Trump. It's almost oh, yeah. like where, it, it, hey, folks, we don't care who you vote for. Just don't vote for this person, mm. which is that's that's alarming. So does this immigration crisis ultimately lead to the death of the European Union as we know it today? I doubt it. Uh, I think the death, uh, I mean, the, 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 the two major things that are sort of hovering around at the moment are Greece in terms of... Uh, Arguably, uh, for many people, uh, they should go back to the drachma and come out of the euro uh, for the problems that it's caused. But of course, Germany doesn't want that. That's a, that's all. You know, that's a failure point that a nation that has joined this great uh, union and a common currency to actually come out of it. So pride, really? Think uh, well, pride I think more well, pride. It's it's just those passionate people who want a totally politically integrated European Union, and of course, France. If France did have a referendum and did vote to leave, uh, then you are starting to see the disintegration of the European Union. Wow. You know, I remember um, in 1997 traveling across Europe and getting all the different currencies from all the different uh, countries where I stopped, and it was only about four or five months later that it was replaced by the euro. And I just remember thinking, it sure seems like they're giving up a lot of their individual culture and identity, but it, you know, at the time you just didn't realize what was happening. And I just, if that were me, that's how I would react. I would think, yeah. how did this change so much so fast? And I haven't had chance, a chance to acclimate to it. And I mean, if you do that to a fish, it dies. I mean, yeah. you have to let, you have to give it a slow, it has to be slow and steady. Well, I suppose for you in those days, uh, Charlie, it must have been awful trying to translate Lyra to Marx to Drac. <laughs> it was. It made it much easier for you, and it was just Euro, didn't it? <laughs> and you got a great coin collection yeah, now, Yeah, I right? still have them all. Yeah, I've got a box under my bed that's full of outdated currency. Lord Ashcroft, we're running low on time, but you, and sitting in front of you is your most recent book, and I would let our audience know that you are a prolific writer and have written uh, many worthy pieces in front of you is a small book called Hopes and Fears, uh, Trump, Clinton, the Voters in the Future. What's the premise of this book? Well, this is when um, we came over here to do 32 focus groups in the swing states and do a 30,000 sample of American voters, not <clears throat> to predict the result of the general election, but to ask the, the, and try to get an answer to the question of why are you voting or why did you vote the way you did? And to try to analyze on all segments of the voters 
what their hopes and fears were in making that choice. And every few months, we come back to the States and review where the hopes are being realized or fears are being realized. And that's the purpose of uh, being in Texas at the moment. And next week, I'm running focus groups in San Antonio and Houston. Right. Have I got Very that good. right for the pronunciation? Of the, Close enough. Close okay, enough. I'm, they don't even say it right. Don't, don't worry okay. about it. Um, in order to start that particular process. And a few weeks ago, we went to Michigan, um, and we found that the Trump voters were still firmly on side with Trump. And, and many of the Democrat voters were rather surprised that Trump was even attempting to try to do the things that he said he was going to. I think most of America was shocked, uh, uh, right? Uh, Lord Ashcroft, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we like to close each of our shows with a quote uh, from our guest. And we didn't give you any forewarning of this, and, and uh, Kevin is now giving me a strange look, but uh, give you a moment to think, or, or we can use this one as in, in its stead. In your book, Dirty Politics and Dirty Times, about on the third page before the book ever starts, is a quote that you put in there by George Bernard, Bernard Shaw. Uh, you know which one I'm talking about, I'm sure. But in Man and Superman, Shaw said, a reasonable, reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable, unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. I think that's very true when you reflect on it, isn't it? Very true. But my final uh, quote, which I've always liked and I've used many times when I get into trouble, as Oscar Wilde said in the 19th century, the only thing I cannot resist is temptation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the story of my life. Uh, if you want to learn more about Lord Ashcroft and his Great. work, you can find it all on lordashcroft.com. LordAshcroftPolls.com. Lord Ashcroft Trey, after Polls. all this time, you can't even get this right for me. In all due respect, sir, you have 10 websites. <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe LordAshcroft.com is, is a good website. Yeah. Kevin, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yes, sir. Lord Ashcroft, thank you for being here. I hope you come back soon. Thanks for being on the Trey Blocker Show. Thanks. All right. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. You can download episodes at TreyBlocker.com or from your favorite podcasting app. Thank you to our guest, Lord Michael Ashcroft. <laughs>